scripture can be found on the inside of the bulletin. This is Luke 7, 1 through 10. Prepare to hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you've been following the recent decisions uh, from the Supreme Court. I don't see how you could not. Dealing with a variety of issues, uh, Obamacare or SCOTUS care, as uh, Justice Scalia would call it. Uh, another decision regarding marriage uh, that was coming down, redefining marriage as uh, not only between a man and a woman. And so it has been praised by some and, uh, and rebuked by others in terms of an overreach of power, uh, in terms of nine men who seem to be able to promulgate whatever decision they want, and it is uh, upon America. Well, Justice uh, Antony Scalia, who was in the dissenting vote, it was five to four, had a couple things to say about, in his dissenting opinion, about this particular decision. Uh, he had a host of things to say about Obamacare, but this is uh, in reference to the decision on marriage. He said um, <clears throat> that the opinion is couched in a style that is as pretentious as its content is egotistic. I like that line. It is one thing for separate concurring or dissenting opinions to contain extravagances, even silly extravagances of thought and expression. It is something else for the official opinion of the court to do so. He said that the five justices are know-it-alls. The five justices who compose today's majority are entirely comfortable concluding that every state violated the Constitution for all of the 135 years between the 14th Amendment's ratification and Massachusetts permitting of same-sex marriages in 2003. He says finally, well, he says a lot, but this is the final point I'm going to make, that it is not of special importance to me what the law says about marriage. It is over, of overwhelming importance, however, who it is that rules me. Today's decree says that my ruler and the ruler of 320 Americans coast to coast is a majority of the nine lawyers on the Supreme Court. The opinion in these cases is the furthest extension in fact and the furthest extension one can ever imagine of the court's claim power to create liberties that the Constitution and its amendments neglect to mention. This practice of constitutional revision by an unelected committee of nine, always accompanied as it is today by extravagant praise of liberty, 
robs the people of the most important liberty they asserted in the Declaration of Independence and won in the Revolution of 1776, the freedom to govern themselves. Govern themselves. Ultimately, these cases are a question of position, of power, and of privilege. Who is it that ultimately has the position to make decisions of this nature that are binding upon all of America? Apparently, the court believes it does. Scalia, in the dissenting opinion for the four, says it is not. Position, power, and privilege. We experience these things all the time, don't we? Whether in government, whether with a company. And we have to ask the question, who really has the position? And who really has the power? That's the point of this story, by the way. Here we have a centurion who is having a host of issues regarding someone in his house, a valued servant. And he has to ask the question as he examines Jesus, what is his position? Who is he in fact? And does he have the power to do something about my problems? Not only does Jesus have the position and the power, but do I have the privilege of coming before him and asking for his help? Well, the centurion, as we know, the end of the story, decided that Jesus had the position and the available power. And had in hand, he took the privilege of coming before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And Jesus marveled at him saying, I tell you, in all of Israel, I've not seen anyone with such great faith. The goal of this sermon is to come upon you and to ask you the question, who is Jesus to you? What is his position? What are the limits of his power? And finally, what privilege do you have to come before him? The message of this sermon is really quite simple. Because we have recognized his position, if you are a Christian, we have the privilege of asking for his power. We're going to look at three particular points in this sermon. Number one, we have to recognize his position. We have to recognize his position, but number two, then we have to trust in his power. This leads me to my final point. If we recognize his position and trust in his power, we can rest in our privilege. Well, let's look at this first point, to recognize his position. You'll remember the story before this was the, the uh, builder who built the house on the rock. And remember, Jesus said, anyone who hears these words of mine and does well, what I tell them is like this person that built the house on the rock. And you remember, the storms came and the streams rose and yet it did not fall because he heard Jesus' words and puts them into practice. Well, now Jesus gives an illustration in history of someone who does these very things. We have a centurion. He's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. Now, a centurion was a position of authority. Using the word sent in, in uh, Roman, in Latin, he was in charge of a hundred men. Soldier in charge of a hundred men. He had position. He had power. Apparently, he had money as well. We see that he was a God-fearing man, and so he helped build the synagogue for the Jews. And so he had money that he spent on fearing God. 
And he also had a problem. Verse 2, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the valued by him. And so the centurion loves this servant. My servant, do this and he does it. See, the soldier understands, I have been set under authority. I know my position. But you have a very different position. I have soldiers set under me. I mean, think about it. On one side you have the centurion, and on the other you have Jesus. The centurion says, I have authority over a hundred. But he's communicating to Jesus, you have authority over life and death itself. The person, the centurion, is recognized by Rome for his position. But Jesus is recognized by God the Father, the one who has been sent. Jesus is the Holy One of God, God in the flesh, the living image of God. The centurion has jurisdiction over a limited and finite piece of geography. But Jesus Christ has jurisdiction over the world. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Because of the title of centurion, his hundred men, their obedience is unquestioned. But because Jesus is the King of Kings, the centurion's obedience is unquestioned to him. And so he appeals to Jesus by the elders of the Gentiles, who lobby for him, by the way, and Jesus comes. But before Jesus has come, the centurion responds again a second time. When he was not far, and Jesus went with him, verse 6, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Do you ever think to yourself, why did he come the second time? I mean, why not just communicate all of this the first time, right? Get it out of the way. But you see, the first time he had a question, and that was, will he come? The second time he acknowledged his position, yes, he will come, and therefore I will show him who I am and who he is by understanding my own position and recognizing his. Isn't it ironic that the elders, the Jews, came to him and through all of the merits of the centurion, pleaded for Jesus to come and heal his servant. And yet here is the centurion who is not even willing to have Jesus come into his house because of his humility. How did the centurion know that Jesus was who he said he was? The centurion knew authority when he saw it, for he was a man under authority. And he heard the words of Christ. And he saw the actions of Christ. And so he saw through the facade of a Jewish carpenter with a ragtag group of uh, these simple fishermen. And as a result of his vision, he was commended. But what about us? What do you see when you look at Jesus? We're here in church. We're surely hearing His Word. Maybe we even acknowledge His Lordship. 
But how do we really respond? Perhaps we confess Him as Lord and Savior as we take communion, as we stand. But the truth of the matter is, it does not matter what you say if you do not demonstrate in your life what you say with your lips. It doesn't matter what you say if you're not able to demonstrate in your life what's in your lips. Some of you have heard, particularly during Christmas time, uh, the uh, chorus and the singing of Handel's Messiah, particularly the point where it gets to the end of one movement and the alleluias come out. And for some reason, everybody stands in the church. Where does that actually come from? Well, most likely they believe that that came from King George II. And during the London premiere of the Messiah in 1743, he was so moved by the Alleluia Chorus that he stood up. And if the king stands, everybody stands. And so it went. In 1750, with Handel conducting and recording, some people watching wrote that the Duchess of Portland, the bishops of Oxford, Gloucester, St. David's, and St. Asaph there stood up. The rest of the people stood up. And in 1756, it accounts the Messiah, during this, the crowd stood up for this grand chorus. A mere 40 years after the premiere, the standing had become so automatic that there was worry that the custom had become mindless, though not to the masses. And so in 1784, John Newton, the former slaveholder turned Christian, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote this. The impression which the performance of this passage in the oratorio usually makes upon the audience is well known. But do the professed lovers of sacred music in this enlightened age generally live as if they believe that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth? Newton thought not. He warned of a God who would bring those who stood less out of deference than fashion to heal, as it were. He must reign, he will reign, till he has subdued all enemies under his feet. doesn't mean much to stand if your life doesn't stand as well. And so, much like the people that are standing in this group, we must decide who we recognize. Is he a teacher? Is he a sage? Is he a prophet? There's a host of, uh, of possible possibilities. You know, you have authority. Maybe you run a company. Maybe you are in charge of a staff. Everybody has authority in some way or shape or form, even with your finances. We are some of the richest people in the world. But we must recognize authority of the one who has authority over us. By his actions, Christ, the one who died and rose again, the one exalted to heaven, the one who poured out the Holy Spirit. We must recognize him by his position, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we must respond. Recognition must lead to response. We must respond appropriately. Not simply standing in a chorus, but standing with our hearts. We must respond expectantly that when we come to the king, he has the capacity and willingness to hear us because we recognize his position. We must respond with humility, much like the centurion 
Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I do not deserve you, for my authority is this small. But I worship you. Because how you respond to his position determines what you will receive from his power. Well, this brings me to my second point. If we recognize his position, we must trust in his power. You know, position and power are always tied together, aren't they? That was Scalia's point. Your position that you've taken, that you've stolen, if you will, has given you power. And so this centurion, recognizing the power of Christ, says in verse 7, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Jesus, wherever you are, just say the word. See, the centurion knows that Jesus' power is not bound by geography. Simply say the word. You don't even have to come. In fact, he could have said that the first time he saw him. First time his servant saw him. His power is not bound by geography. His method is simply to issue a command. Just say the word. Not just say the words. Not utter some incantation, some special spell, some secret knowledge that you've managed to acquire, magician. But simply say the word. Give the command. The centurion understands. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. I say a word or two, do this, and he does it. See, he has been set under authority. And the one in position of Savior has been set only second to the authority of God who sent him. Think about the power of Jesus' word. How did the centurion know? That this word created all things. For God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was. The scriptures tell us that Jesus' powerful word sustains all things. All the things that are going on right now throughout the earth. All the things in your body. The scriptures say that he sustains them by his powerful word. He controls nature with his word, right? He's on the boat. Master, master, don't you care that we're going to drown? And he got up. Shh, lake, be still. With the word settling the seas. What about with his healing? The little girl. He comes into her room, she's dead. Little girl, wake up. What about the leper? If you are willing, you can make me clean. I am willing. And what about Lazarus? Lazarus, come out. See, it really doesn't matter as much as what the Word is. It's the power behind the Word. And so Jesus speaks. In fact, He gives the command in His head. It really doesn't say that He said anything. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. See, friends, we try to separate position 
and power. We recognize his position perhaps, but we don't recognize his power. And so we hear and we don't obey. He has a great position, but he doesn't have it over me. He has no power over me or to intervene in my circumstances. And so we don't obey and we don't ask. We live as orphans, living by the skills that we have, sort of these MacGyvers of the world trying to put together our solutions with paper clips and other things. And so we neuter God. But the God of the universe will not be neutered by his servants. For he is the Son of God and is anything too hard for the Lord. His power has no limits. And so you may recognize his position, but do you recognize his power? Here's how you will know. How do you obey his word? Do you tremble at it? Do you revere it? I say to my servant, and he goes, and come. How do you obey God's commands? How do you worship God? This Gentile, this centurion, understands to bow the knee. Do we worship the king? Or do we come into our church, and someone asks us out of the, after the service, how was the worship? Ah, it wasn't so good. It's about the Lord. Do we worship the king? And then finally, how do you obey? How you worship? Who do you rely on? You'll know this by how you pray, by the way. Do I bring to the king of kings all the things of my life, the concerns and cares and hopes? Not even the big stuff, but the little stuff. How do I pray? You see, because we acknowledge his position, if you do, if you are a Christian, we can rely on his power. I remember during my years at the University of Virginia, I was a walk-on uh, to the tennis team there. And so I had the opportunity, indeed the responsibility with other guys on the team to go and work out and build muscle and strength. And as you can see, here are the results of my labor. Well, the gym... Uh, there at University of Virginia was not only for the tennis players, it was also for all athletes, including the football players. I remember walking across and seeing Chris Slade. Anyone remember Chris Slade? Okay, ginormous guy, okay, played for the New England Patriots. But there were people bigger than Chris Slade, 320 pounders, these giant colossus of people, this hippopotamic landmass, to quote the Prince's Bride. And so I would go in and there was a host of dumbbells from one end to the other as far as the eye could see. And I would go over to the, uh, this end of the dumbbells and I would grab my small weights and I would work out. And every now and then I would gaze longingly and walk all the way down to see the football players. And at the end of the line were 200 pound dumbbells. I weigh 160 pounds. 200-pound dumbbells. One dumbbell, 200 pounds. Isn't that astounding that someone could actually lift that? See, the whole point of it is this. How foolish for me to think I could come over and even lift this thing off the rack. 
This is reserved for the one that truly has power. The one who was built that way. The one who was designed, who was given that particular position. But we do this all the time. And so, you and I must see with eyes of faith. We must see His power. And we must live according to it. Life is a prayer. A trust in God. Because we have many 200-pound dumbbells, don't we? There are many in your life. If you haven't experienced them yet, don't worry. They're coming. They, some people say that God does not give us more than we can handle. That is an absolute lie. God will not let us be tempted more than we can handle. But He will test us. And frankly, part of the reason He does is He's trying to move us to go to Him instead of ourselves. For without tests and trials, how can one be brave? How can one be dependent? But the beauty of it, of, of this is that when we live according to His power, we have a confidence. We can walk with our head held high, even if we can only pick up those weights, because I know somebody, and nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so when you are scared, and you're tired, and your life is caving down around you, ask to the God Almighty, Ask in accordance with His will. There's some things I automatically know He's going to pick up the dumbbell. Why the heck don't I ask for those? Lord, help me to pray. Help me to worship. Help me to love my neighbor as myself. It's already in the book. Ask in accordance with His will. Ask persistently. Sometimes God is just testing us to make sure we actually believe this stuff. Ask patiently. God hears our prayer. He will work in His due time. Simply ask patiently and persistently and ask powerfully. God, pick up the 200-pound weight. I think sometimes we tell Him to pick up the 20-pound because we think that's all He can handle. Not the centurion. And so we ask and we expect. Just say the word. And if he doesn't answer right away, there's not a problem of his power. God wants you to seek him. And God will answer in his due time. Some people have asked, my wife and I, the question, how do you have such confidence in this whole situation with your son? If you say the Lord works, how could he have let that happen? My answer is simple. All is not done yet. God is working. And His justice, His mercy, His power will be made manifest. So we need not fear, for God's power is greater than all things. This brings me to my final point, that we have a privilege of approaching His power, His person, if you are a believer in Christ, that is. You know, this privilege, it's very interesting to see the centurion. How does he approach Jesus Christ? He's almost afraid to come to him, isn't he? He approaches hesitantly. 
He approaches uh, nervously, if you will. He doesn't approach necessarily with any sort of expectation that he will be heard. Is that the way we are to approach? See, the nature of one's relationship determines the manner of their approach. But my friends, if you are a Christian, you have a whole different relationship. Not as a Gentile who has not confessed Christ as Lord, but as a child of God. How great is the love that God has manifest upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. So therefore, as Hebrews says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. He chose us before the foundations of the world and He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ according with His pleasure and will. And since He chose us, since He predestined us, since He put His affection on us and called us not slaves but sons, we can approach boldly, not with fear, We recognize who He is. But we're able to recognize who we are. Do we have problems? Yes. But we have a place that we can run underneath the throne of God. We can go expectantly, boldly, because we have the privilege of entering into His throne room anytime we want. How great is the love that God has manifested upon us. So has Jesus come near? Yes. So we must come near to Him. We must not let His position intimidate us because He is our Heavenly Father. He's not only our Father, He's my Father. And He delights to show mercy. And so, how do you come to God? Maybe you recognize his position. Maybe you even recognize his power. But do you recognize the awesome privilege of being able to enter into my father's house and to ask the moon and the stars of him? The centurion said, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But Jesus said, I want nothing more than you to come under mine the blessings of Jesus Christ and His Father are based on the merits of the Son. If you are a Christian, this whole sermon applies to you. If you're not, what are you waiting for? He is the King. He is the Almighty and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, either in sheer terror or in sheer delight. Because we have recognized His position, we have the privilege of asking for His power. And so recognize His position, trust in His power, and rest day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute, in our privilege.
Let's pray. Lord, despite our unbelief and our brokenness, it's obvious that you are the king. You are the one over all who sustains the world, who made us. Lord, I thank you that you have come, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that you have manifested to us who you are, not by our gifts or abilities, but by the spirit which you have poured upon us, a gift of your love. And so, Lord, help us to bow the knee in awe, but also in delight. For in my Father's house are many rooms, and I've come to prepare a place for you. And so we will trust in your power, in the little things and in the great things, in our deepest hope and in our deepest fear. For are you not strong enough to handle everything in our lives? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.